Hello and welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 97. My name is Adam. With me today we have Kevin. How are you doing, Kevin? I'm doing all right. Today we'll be going over some of what we've been watching before getting into some news, including the Sundance 2014 lineup, as well as the Golden Globes nominations. We'll be talking about that a little bit. Uh, no feature review this week because we didn't. Neither of us saw The Hobbit, and we don't have any interviews lined up this week. So, kind of a light week. We're getting into the holiday season, so everybody's kind of winding down. Coasting. We're coasting. Yeah. Kind of coasting. But uh, then we'll be going over this week's movie predictions, new on video on demand, and DVD and Blu-ray releases. Let's kick it off with some of what we've been watching. Kevin, we'll start it with you this week. What do you got? Uh, I started off with Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. Ooh. The old Alpha Papa. Yeah. And although I'm familiar with uh, Coogan's character, Alan Partridge, I've never actually seen anything uh, with Alan Partridge in it. So this was sort of my introduction. And I have to say I like it. Yeah, I like it good a lot. In- it's a good intro. Um, now... It's difficult to like really critique the film, not knowing the character or you know any of the you know the TV series or anything like that because I did see that some people were you know thought it was a little lackluster because it wasn't on par with the quality that like the TV series was and everything. So I don't have that to compare it against. So for me it was just a good time. I enjoyed it and it definitely makes me want to see more Alan Partridge. Well, uh, I have seen quite a number of episodes of the show, and it, it's a little bit different than the show. I mean, obviously, it's higher quality as far as like production values. Yeah. yeah. But the humor is a little bit different. It's the show is a little bit. I'll maybe say it's a little bit more dry. The show, like there, there aren't as many like visual gags and things like that, and everything's just so much bigger in the movie yeah like the show is pretty much just his day-to-day life yeah and Which just the, you just you tell me that the show's more dry makes me think that i'm actually gonna like the show a lot more i wouldn't i wouldn't say that i necessarily like the show more i really enjoyed the movie because the the things that i find funny in the movie are in the show and that's mostly just the dialogue yes. just the the, the hilarious things. I mean, almost everything that Alan Partridge says makes me laugh. Just, I think he's just the funniest character. I enjoyed his questions of the day, especially the one where he's like, "What's the worst monger?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that it, the, just the whole plot of the film, like the the hostage thing and all that stuff. Like, I wasn't too into that. No, but, no, no, and. I mean, I always say this though is, I'm going into this with the expectation is make me laugh. That's all you got to do. That's yep. a, you know that's what a comedy's supposed to do. Yeah. Exactly. So the story, I, I mean, yeah, the story is sort of far fetched and a bit ridiculous, and we've seen it before, but the comedy's there. So exactly, it, it's it's fu- hilarious. I thought it was hilarious, and, and, I, just, and- I also love the fact that they worked in the Bam Marillion. <laughs> just the fact that no one knew that that guy was the drummer from Marilly. the drummer from Marilly. <laughs> oh my god yes please yeah but I, I really like it's 
the dialogue is really fast, you know, like Alan Partridge is kind of a fast talker and it's it's one of those movies where I've seen it twice and it's like each time you watch it you pick up on these just these little throwaway lines that are in there yeah. that are just brilliant and I thought it was it was great and but that being said, some of the visual gags I thought were really funny too. <laughs> the the scene where he's trying to climb out the window and it, pull, and it pulls his pants off. I thought that that was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, and then he tucks his genitals and the cop's like, yeah. what are you doing? What are you doing? That's weird. Don't do that. Yeah. I did. I, I thought, and, but the only thing for me, like, number one, it makes me want to watch, like, just go on a binge fest and watch yeah. everything related to Alan Partridge, which is, I mean, that's a win Yeah. for the movie. And But also, I could see myself watching you know, the TV series and everything, and then maybe coming back to this mm-hmm. and maybe maybe not liking it as much or maybe seeing it as like a little bit of a letdown. But the simple fact is is that it makes me want to see more Alan Partridge. Yeah. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah. And and he's just a hilarious character. And the the show is extremely hard to find here in the States for some reason. I can't find it anywhere. So if anybody has a, a good way to find the show, let me know. Cause, Give it to us. Um, all right. I started the week off with Salinger. This is the documentary about J.D. Salinger, currently playing on Netflix. Um, nothing but bad things. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. So I was mildly interested in this back when... I don't remember <laughs> when it came out, earlier this year. And... You know, the the way that they marketed this movie was like they're like acting like they're gonna crack the crack this whole thing wide open and we're gonna learn so much about this, you know, reclusive man. Yeah. And it was just such a letdown. It was uh, this by the numbers talking head documentary and it was just pretty boring and it was like that they the people that they talked to were just so enamored with this guy and it's like i just don't understand what the big deal is and all the things that they revealed in the documentary were not that big like like oh he's gonna actually be publishing more books in a couple years so that i guess for fans of catcher in the rye or maybe some of his short stories i guess that's big news but I don't know if that's something that the documentary actually, you know, broke. If that was the news that they broke. Yeah, it just seems like they don't really have anything from what no, it just, from what from what you told me. It's like I already knew that stuff. Yeah, I mean, it was I don't know. If you're really into Salinger, I mean, I, I guess it's a no-brainer to see this one. But just don't expect much in the way of. I, I like I thought that the production quality was pretty low. Like I was expecting a lot. I mean, this is a Weinstein film, so I was expecting it to be, you know, fairly top notch, but I was surprised at just how poor poor quality it looked. Yeah. I to me the judging from the the trailer, it sort of looks as though they just get a boatload of famous people to discuss how much they like oh, him. The, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that that was really odd. Like they just get these random actors like like Martin Sheen to talk about him and I'm like why is Martin Sheen here? 
Like, what's the point of that? I don't even get that. Yeah. Just and like, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I was just like, what do these men have? Is there something I'm missing here? Do they know the guy? <laughs> like, what, what's going on? I know, because on it's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I get it. People like J.D. Salinger. I, I know, like, a lot of people like him. I don't need to see or hear famous people tell me, oh, I really love his work. Good for you. It doesn't yeah, make a documentary. And, and the thing is... You know, because the guy is, is somewhat reclusive, there aren't that many pictures or video of him out there. So did, they just so they just kept the old... recycling yes. the same ones over and over again. Yes. And I was just like, okay. Fantastic. Yeah, so I don't I do not recommend Salinger. It it feels like it even though I haven't seen it, it sounds like a forced documentary. Like, hey, no one's done Salinger, let's do it. Yeah, and I mean he he is an interesting guy, and apparently, the the film doesn't really paint him in the best light either. He seems like he's kind of a dick, or he was kind of a dick. Yeah, like he completely neglected his family and his children. Hmm. And it's like well, I don't really care about him anymore. He seems like a total asshole. <laughs> he's like so full of himself. Sounds like a piss poor documentary to me. Yeah, it is. Uh, I watched In the House. Uh, this is a Francois Ozon film, which I've never really been into him. But this is also uh, this is currently playing simply on Netflix, and it's this pretty intriguing story where there's a young student, and he's in a class with a literature professor, and literature professor Jermaine. Uh, realizes that this kid has some talent. So he starts working with him, and the, the stuff that the kid's writing is, like, very personal. Like, he's trying to inject himself into the lives of this his new friend that he made over the summer. And he's trying to, like, infiltrate their family. And it's all very wrong, like, what he's writing about, because he essentially wants to get into the house. He wants to replace the son. He's in love with the son's mother, and he wants to be with her. And it's just, you'd know that this is going to end horribly. But the literature teacher decides that, oh, i got to help this kid out because he, he shows a lot of promise, a lot of talent. So he's sort of teaching him, you know, how to develop his stories and how to write and all this and that. And sort of, like, as it's playing out, the story's continually being rewritten and it's seen from different perspectives. So... All of that is changing in front of you through the visual storytelling, through the film. Mm. And it's it's very interesting. I highly recommend it. And then it gets to the point where you don't really know what's fact and fiction because they're constantly rewriting or changing, um, cha- either changing the perspective or, you know, changing the character's uh, reasonings for what they're doing. And it's just constantly shifting. And you're not really sure what's real and what's not. And it, what's real to who and this and that. And at one point, the, the literature teacher like actually comes in contact with the parents that he's been reading about. Because he keeps getting these uh, sections of the stories as you know homework assignments. So like every couple of days or so, he gets a new installment. And he's obsessed with the story and he wants to see where it's going, not really realizing that he's actually affecting real life people so when he actually sees the people you know 
of course he's a little bit uneasy and he doesn't want to meet them because to him they're just characters in a story. They're not real people. So he's not really concerned with how, well, you know, what the young kid's doing to this family's life, like how it's actually going to affect them because he doesn't really see them as real people. He just sees them as characters. And then he sort of gets thrust into it. And it's just, you know, a lot of ramifications from that. It's very interesting just to, to see how how it's done. It's done very, very well. Sort of the, the visual aspects of telling this story really hmm. sucks you in. I'm sold. Yeah, you definitely. I think you'll love this. I'm definitely sold. <clears throat> I saw a film called Seduced and Abandoned. This is on HBO Go right now. This is a documentary by James Toback where he and Alec Baldwin go to the Cannes Film Festival in order to sell a fictitious film that they came up with. And basically the the fake movie that they're trying to sell is a um, sort of a remake of Last Tango in Paris. Okay. And it's like set in modern day in Iraq and the purpose of the documentary is to take a look at how film financing is done at the Cannes Film Festival. So they go and they meet with a lot of insanely rich film financiers and it it tries to shed a light on how the process of financing a film is done, but it it doesn't really get there for me, at least. I think that it it tries, but it just doesn't. It's like an experiment that doesn't fully work. And they inject all this other stuff into the documentary that feels kind of unnecessary. Like they they get some really big interviews in this. They talk to like Jessica Chastain, they talk to uh, Diane Kruger, James Caan, they talk to um, Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Ryan Gosling, just some really big names. Mm -hmm. But they don't really talk to them about like film financing. They talk to them about acting. And it just feels like kind of all over the place. And whereas I think that the concept of the film itself is really interesting. Like they go to Cannes. This is Alec Baldwin's first time at at Cannes. So he's experiencing it for the first time. And they're meeting with all these people. They're learning how how it works. And some of the stuff is is really fascinating. Like they meet with all these um, foreign representatives for other countries. And they learn about like incentive packages to film their movie in that country and stuff. Yeah. And so, so a lot of that stuff is really interesting. And it's also interesting because they interview tons of these billionaire film finance people and they learn about how they pick movies and how much money it's worth and stuff. And it's, it's kind of funny at first because they decide to pitch this movie. Alec Baldwin is going to star and Nev Campbell is going to be the female lead. But every every time they talk to anybody, they're like, okay, Nev Campbell, no. Alec Baldwin, no. Can't, 
can't do it on his own, which is funny because Alec Baldwin's usually sitting right there. <laughs> and they were like, okay, well, how much, you know, we're looking to get 15, 20 million for this. How much would you give realistically? And they're, they're always like four or five million. And th- that aspect of the film is interesting because it further supports the idea that there's this divide in filmmaking where there's no like middle budget movies. There's the independent films that have next to no budget. And then there's the giant blockbusters that have like the hundred million dollar budgets. There's no middle of the road movies. So filmmakers like Roman Polanski, for instance, like his movies are not super cheap, but at the same time, they're not like super expensive either. I, I guess you could say the same about Scorsese where I think his movies would be in the middle, you know, as far as budget. And these guys are having a harder time now getting financing for their movies, which I think is really funny. Hmm. It's just like, you know, how the middle class in the United States is disappearing. It's the same thing with film where these... Can't get the middle of the road movies going. Right, exactly. It's either these super cheap, low-budget films or the giant, expensive comic book movies. Yeah. And they kind of explore that a little bit, but I don't feel like they go deep enough into it. And none of it can be taken seriously because if we're meant to believe that the meetings that these that they're having with these film finance people are like real meetings where they're actually pitching this idea and trying to get money, n- that never I never once believed that these guys actually thought that this was real. Like none of them were taking it seriously at all. Yeah. So if it well, was supposed, I mean, honestly, I have to say that the 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 movie that they're trying to sell sounds terrible. Oh yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> it's terrible. Who wants to see Alec Baldwin in a like Last Tango in Paris type movie? Yeah, and they were talking about like how it's going to be so full of sex and stuff, and they actually interview Bertolucci in the film and talk about it and it's I don't know it just seems kind of ridiculous like the whole thing just it's all over the place and just really just an odd it's a really odd movie and then at the end James Toback asks each of the people that they interview if they're ready to die which I thought was really odd too yeah that seems to come out of nowhere yeah I mean there was a reason behind it but it was kind of dumb and I, I just I find it to be a, f- a failed experiment. I do want to see like a legit documentary about film financing. Yeah. Because I, I find that to be interesting and I don't know a lot about it, but this was not that. It was yeah. trying to be, but it wasn't. Not what you were looking for. I would like to also point out that The Wolf of Wall Street does have an estimated budget of $100 million. That one's a big one. but He's got his money. I watched uh, Paradise Faith. Now, I think it's interesting that you start with Faith. Well, not... I wanted to watch, what was the one? Love? Love's the first one. Right? Love's, yeah, Love's the first I one. I wanted to watch Love, but my wife already watched it. So she was sitting down to watch Faith. And I was like, do I need to see them in order? And she was like, no, I don't think you have to. And I think that you even told me that it's not really, you know, it's not like a must, must no. see to, you know, to see them in order. So I was like, all right, I'll watch it with you. Because I want to I wanna watch them. I want to watch all three before the year's over. So it's sort of me just being opportunistic, just taking advantage of 
Paradise Space being on my TV. So, yep, I watched the second one first. That's how I do things. <laughs> um, and I have to say that this, I was not... I mean, I was impressed cinematography-wise. Like, I loved the camera work in this, which is really just nothing but static shots throughout the entire film. Except for, like, the last, I don't know, maybe 10-minute sequence where it goes into, like, a handheld-type deal. But Mm -hmm. the entire beginning of the movie is just beautifully framed shots where he centers, like, all the action, and you just have people walking through the frame you know, either from the bottom left, bottom right, just walking through. Sort of, it feels a lot like um, Gene Dielman or, you know, sort of like Haneke. I can, apparently, that's all they do in Austria is this type of camera work. <laughs> and I loved all of that. I mean, just the composition was fantastic. The color was fantastic. Um, and in the beginning of the movie, the characters themselves feel very natural, very human and, I mean, relatable I can, I've met these types of people. So I'm, I'm like in it and yes, it's a bit slow and it drags for a little bit, but everything makes sense. And then there just comes this complete shift in tone and character development towards the end and everything just gets fucking weird. <laughs> not, well, not even weird. It just, to me, it just came off as silly and stupid. Just these all these characters that in the beginning felt very realistic and natural just all of a sudden make these huge leaps in character development and now they're just parodies of their former selves and it just it just sucked me right out like i was into it and then that happened and i was just like oh what the hell am i watching it just it feels like two different types of movies and it's just like he put all this care and thought into the beginning portion of it, and then just threw it all out the fucking window. And I mean, the the use, yeah, you saw all three, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, like, I understand that she's uber religious, and I know that that shit can come on rather quickly. I've experienced that myself, not me personally, but I've seen it. And then next thing you know, she's licking and kissing and humping, <laughs> and I'm just like, what? Are you fucking kidding me? She is in love with Jesus. Yeah, I get that. But she just starts humping a crucified Jesus. She like, just loves him so much. She she has so much love to give. It's just... And I think that might have been the point where I was just like, oh, you're just doing this to be fucking provocative. There's no reason that this should be in here. It's just ridiculous. And then, you know, the, the leap that her husband makes, who's, you know, a Muslim that's... Uh, physically uh, disabled it's in a wheelchair you know i understand he feels ignored and everything and then out of nowhere he just turns into a wife beater and he's calling her a whore and a slut and i'm just like okay that seemed to be a rapid shift in personality well there's definitely something going on there before the movie even began because he was gone remember like he yeah he was somewhere else, and then he just showed up. So there was obviously some sort of tension there from the beginning, but uh, I think that things devolved pretty quickly in their relationship. Yeah, I just wasn't a fan. Wasn't a fan. It just, to me, a lot of aspects just felt like he was just doing it to get a rise out of people. And I do see, I mean, on a base level, I do see that he's doing this whole 
culture clash, globalization type deal where, you know, of course the husband's a Muslim and he's physically disabled and she's, you know, a devout Catholic and he's a foreigner in her world and he's sort of ignored. And then how, you know, I can see the correlation that he's trying to make with, you know, actual real world problems. But I just think that he throws all of that out the window with these ridiculous uh, character developments towards the end of the film. Because that seems to be his thing in everything. You know, like, it, it's it's there in love. You know, she goes to Kenya and she's using, you know, the Kenyans. And it's in his uh, import-export movie. It seems like that's what he's stuck on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could see that, I guess. But, I don't know. I just, I was not a fan. I'm still, I'm... I'm still interested because I like the way that the film was made, just the writing I was not into. So I'm I definitely that, interested in seeing uh, Love and Hope. I think that Faith was my least favorite. Well, that's the other thing, too. I've been, I've been reading that three. from a lot of people. Everyone seems to be saying that Faith is the weakest of the three. Yeah, because, I don't know, I, it, that one was, it was fine. I still liked it, but... I did one one of the scenes that I really liked a lot was the the overly long uh like fight scene that she had with that woman that was drinking. Oh yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was so bizarre. I know. It's just it's, the whole time I'm sitting there I'm like, why are you there? Just, yeah. Just get the fuck out of her life. Yeah. I thought that that was interesting. All right. Uh I saw Tulane Blacktop from 1971. This was my Grindhouse Weekly pick. I've been wanting to see this for a while. Yeah, this is on Criterion, which I didn't even know at first. Uh, Directed by Monty Hillman and stars James Taylor. Oh, yeah. James Taylor and Dennis Wilson, drummer of the Beach Boys. There you go. And it also stars Warren Oates and Laurie Bird. Basically, this is one of these existential road trip movies from the early 70s, you know, like a a Route 66 type pre-interstate movie. And at first, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is is okay. You know, there's not, not a lot going on here, not a lot to latch on to. But by the end of the film, I was just like, I love this movie. This movie is so incredible. And... Because it's one of those movies that has, an, at least in my opinion, an infinite amount of interpretations that you can take away from it. Because mm-hmm. it, it is a completely stripped down movie. The dialogue is very sparse. The characters, are, they don't even have names. You don't even know the names of the characters. You don't really know why they're doing what they're doing. They're just driving. They're just driving across the country. This sounds, and, this sounds like the quintessential blueprint for Mumblecore. Um, sort of. I could see that. I mean, with Mumblecore, though, there's a lot more random dialogue. That's true. With this movie, a lot of it's just kind of silent. And you, you don't really know what's motivating the characters. Uh, but... There's like a million ways that you can look at this movie. You can look at it on the surface as just kind of a a poorly scripted road trip movie that's just cashing in on the success of Easy Rider. But then 
another way you can look at it is it's this like kind of fantastical just odd it, it odd road trip movie that takes a look at you know this subculture yeah <clears throat> or counterculture i guess you would say but uh each character is has kind of their own little quirks um a lot of people talk about the the Lori Bird character because she's this like young girl who for some reason she just gets in their car so there's a a fantastic scene it looks amazing it's just James Taylor and Dennis Wilson and they're in a diner and it's completely silent they're eating in this diner along along the road and the whole scene is just the, the camera's just sitting there pointed at them eating and they're not saying a word to each other and in the background you see Laurie Bird getting out of this van and then getting into their car and she's sitting in the back of their car so they finish eating and they go they get in their car and they drive away they see her but they don't they don't ask her what she's doing in their car they don't say who are you (laughs) like nothing they just drive away (laughs) like it's just normal and then they and then the weird thing is she ends up having sex with pretty much everybody in the entire movie. And that's kind of weird. I know that a lot of people talk about that aspect, but there's just, there's so much going on. And then Warren Oates comes in and he challenges them to a race across the country. There you go. And along the way he picks up random hitchhikers so he'll just pick up random hitchhikers everywhere he goes, and each person he picks up, he tells them a different life story about himself. So you never really know who this guy is, where he comes yeah. from, you know, because it's, it's all made up. One of the hitchhikers he picks up is Harry Dean Stanton, who plays a gay cowboy. Fantastic. Yep, and it's amazing because Harry Dean keeps trying to proposition him. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. It's a weird movie. It is a it's a very weird movie and one of the best lines it happens near the beginning of the film. So what they're doing is they're financing this road trip by doing um races. So they're they're racing people on on like tr- like quarter mile tracks and on street on the street. So there's a scene where James Taylor tries to reel in this guy into a race tries to like sucker him into a race and uh he he walks up to the guy and the guy's like oh you want to race and james taylor let me find he goes make it three yards motherfucker and we'll have an automobile race and it was just the way that james taylor delivered this line (laughs) was so brilliant because it's james taylor make it three yards mother because he you know He's all soft spoken, so he's like, "Make it three yards, motherfucking love, an automobile race." <laughs> oh God, I want to watch this right now. Yeah, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's where'd, amazing. Where do you end up with it, rating wise? Oh, I gave it a four and a half on Letterboxd. Yeah. Right. Like I said, it's a movie that it sits with you. Like um, I didn't initially rate it. After I saw it, I rated it like two days later. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, you know what? I really love that movie. Because after I watched it, I was like, yeah, it was all right. Not a lot to it. But then it just 
the longer I sat with it, the more I liked it. Hmm. Yeah, it's and, it's, and I like these kinds of movies though. Yeah. So like, I when like it, Vanishing Point, Easy Rider, Electra Glide, Electric Glide and Blue, Electra Glide. I like uh, pretty much all you had to do is tell me seventies American, and I'm like, yes, I'm in. That just seemed oh, yeah. to be like, just oh, everything came together for American filmmakers in the seventies. Yeah, and this just continuously I mean, killed it. This is definitely one of those time capsule films where it perfectly encapsulates the era. I mean, you got muscle cars, the the road itself plays a character in this film, much like a lot of those other ones. And it's very existential, you know? It's all about It's all about how the old highways dying out. Yeah. Yep. And you know, these people are just kind of meandering through their lives and they have no real purpose and it, it's it's good yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna check that one out yeah on criterion oh, that probably means it's on hulu jump on there and watch it tonight i watched two animated short films by uh frederick back but i watched the man who planted trees and crack now crack being crack by back crack by back correct which is a, I think that's from 1981, which actually won him a Academy Award for Best uh, Short, Animated Short Film. And it's, Crack is really good in which it's a nice little story of sort of the, the life of a tree or I guess more specifically the afterlife of a tree. You know, the guy goes out, cuts down the tree handcrafts it into a rocking chair and then it sort of shows the the life of the rocking chair throughout the family's life so you know the wife uses it to rock the baby asleep Uh, the kids use it as a number of different creative outlet type deals where they're imagining that it's a race car they're imagining that it's a horse all sorts of things and then finally it's discarded and it's sort of just left out in the open while you know the the town that they live in sort of which i'm guessing is quebec because it's a i guess his self-proclaimed tribute to quebec that goes through their rapid transition of uh industrialization and just you know modernization and everything and then it's sort of rediscovered and repurposed and put into like a modern modern art museum you know to sort of celebrate the you know the old artwork and it's quite mm-hmm. good. The his uh, his style of animation is is fantastic and crack. I mean, the man who planted trees I didn't think was as good. I don't think it served its. I just don't think it worked with the type of story that they were telling. Which the man who planted trees is is based off of a, a original story um, by a, a French author, Jean Gino, who does a. It's. Uh, narrated by Christopher Plummer, and it sort of tells the story of this um, this man that spends a solitary life of planting trees, just planting trees all the time. Picks out the great best acorns he can find, and he plants like hundred trees a day. And he ends up creating this huge forest. It's absolutely beautiful, brings life to this barren wasteland, and everyone's just unbelievable. They. People move there, and everyone's happy, and 
no one really knows that he's the guy that did all of this. They just figure that it's a creation from God and it just sort of a miracle that this force sprung back out of nowhere. But in all actuality, he's the guy that created the whole thing just from years and years and years of going out and planting trees. So, I mean, the story is unbelievable. It's a great story. And Christopher Plummer's voice is perfect to narrate this story. He just has that somber, gentle tone to him. And it all works beautifully. But in all actuality, that's just, it's like an audiobook. And Beck's animation just doesn't really work here, for me at least. I mean, if you, because there's a lot of people that absolutely love The Man Who Planted Trees, and I can completely understand that. Like, if you tell me it's a 10 out of 10 for you, I wouldn't argue at all. I can completely understand where you're coming from. But to me, I just didn't like his sort of... uh, His animation is sort of a combination of like charcoal, colored pencil type sketches where they're Mm -hmm. always shifting and moving. Mm -hmm. And to me, for the man who planted trees, there just wasn't enough life in the story for his animation to really work well like it didn't crack. But I I, I recommend both of them, even though I didn't like the man who planted trees that much. But I think you'll... I imagine a lot of people love the story. And they're yeah. actually both on uh, YouTube. You can watch both of them. Yeah, I was just watching, as you were talking about it, I was just watching parts of The Man Who Planted Trees. Doesn't, uh, that animation style probably can't get behind that. But. No, and but trust me, if if you watch The Man Who Planted Trees and you're just like, ah, this animation is not that great. If you watch Crack, you'll be like, oh, it works so much better in this type of atmosphere mm-hmm. where there's a lot of, you know, merriment and activity going on and a lot of color and it really works well there cool i saw blue is the warmest color now i'm probably not gonna talk a lot about this because i imagine that you're gonna see it at some point and we'll probably talk about it again yeah we'll more than probably next week i'll probably see Um, this sometime this week so i i liked it i gave it a four out of five on letterboxd but I will say that I do have problems with it. Now, you were talking about how Paradise Faith you felt was provocative just to be provocative. Like, the parts of it were just thrown in there. And I feel the exact same way about Blue is the Warmest Color. I mean, we all know, uh, for those that have seen the movie, understand. And even those that haven't probably heard about the type of content that's in the movie, there are very long very graphic sex scenes in this movie Mm -hmm. and a lot of times i just didn't really understand why we needed them to be so long and so graphic or maybe just so long like i get that we're trying to it's trying to convey that these two these two girls are extremely in love with each other and they have this kind of insatiable lust for one another but it just got it just felt like it was pandering to people that just want to see this type of provocative cinema Mm -hmm. and you know i don't think that that necessarily hurt the movie for me too much but it is a three hour long movie so oh god (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh it's a long one to get through so I feel like they probably could have trimmed some of some of it down. And the, the, the reason that I gave it a 4 out of 5 is 
for pretty much one thing alone, and that's the performances from the two characters, uh, who I'm not even going to try to pronounce their names because I'd butcher them. Leah and Adele. I'll say their first names. There you names. go. There you go. Nailed it. Uh, they were incredible. Like, absolutely, at least to me, amazing. Like, I really felt like these two people were... They they just felt so real. And I some of that has to do, I think, with the script. But everything felt so natural. The conversations, the emotion. It was just amazing to me. Um, the cinematography is really good, too. Uh, there were a few specific visual shots that I found to be really, really cool looking. And I'll probably wait to talk about those specific ones till after you see it, just to see if we're on the same page with that. Mm-hmm. But the story overall, I didn't find it to be that great or unique in in any way. It felt very similar to like Five Hundred Days of Summer, a lot of other love stories. I mean, they don't they don't go with a Hollywood ending with this movie, which you know that's always a plus. But at the same time, there's just there wasn't a whole lot there. Yeah. I'm, I just, uh, I'm not that interested in this film. I'm going to watch it, but. I mean, I think it's it's definitely worth watching. If if anything, it's worth watching for the performances. Because yeah. they were just incredible. I thought they were incredible, at least. I just got sick and tired of the, the back and forth between the director and the the actresses yeah, afterwards. See, I, I don't and know. I mean the director came off as like a huge fucking dick. And then this came out at the time where before this movie came out and sort of swept through can, I was already sort of getting sick and tired of movies where men trying to depict like female sexuality. Like it just really started to bother me. Cause it just always seems like they're like fantasy of like what they want it to be. And then when this film came out, I was like, oh, here we go. Why the fuck is this guy making this movie? But then I did think about it a little bit because it being based on like a graphic novel, right? By a female. Mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm wondering why she gave this guy the rights to adapt it. Because she even came out and said that she hated it and she didn't like the way that things were handled, especially the sex scenes. Because she was sort of saying the same thing that you're saying. I just didn't get I don't understand what and you'll see like it's extremely and i'm not a prude you know like i watch the bulk of the movies i watch contain a lot of graphic sex and violence but i just didn't understand what i I didn't get why it was so long and so graphic it it, it just seemed and like i think that it's interesting because we have nymphomaniac coming out in a few months and I think that it'll be an interesting companion piece because I think that the the sex in that movie is probably going to be more graphic and more disturbing, but yeah, I think in that movie it's going to be justified. There's going to be we'll a reason wait. for it. We'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. I'm gonna th- I'm gonna keep my uh, my mind open going into blue is the warmest color. Yeah, I, I and I'm not yeah like with I tried to skirt around like specifics of what I thought because I don't want you to be thinking about that yeah. when you're watching it. So I'll hold off on like my specific thoughts gotcha. for now. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
Uh, I then watched The Hunt. I finally got to see The Hunt. Thomas Vinterberg's The Hunt, uh, co-written with Tobias Lindholm, who wrote and directed a hijacking, which I did not know until after the film. So I was like, I mean, as soon as I was done watching The Hunt, I was like, I, this was very well written. It's like, oh, dude, who wrote this? And then come to find out it was the guy that directed a hijacking, which is another one of, I think, this year's best films. Uh, the Hunt, I absolutely loved. Uh, I get uh, pretty much everything that I see from people is that Mads Mikkelsen is unbelievable, and that seems to be what every single person talks about. And while I did like his performance, I thought that he was actually outshined by the little girl that plays Clara, Anika mm. Wittercop. I thought mm-hmm. she did an amazing job. I thought that she was actually better than Mads Mikkelsen. But I can I can see why people are freaking out about Mads. The guy's name is Mads, for Christ's sake. I love him, and I loved him in that movie. So. Plus that headbutt. Are you serious? Hmm. That headbutt was awesome. But I just, I love the... You know, it has that whole mob mentality type deal where it's fairly clearly set out for the viewer in the beginning that he's completely innocent of the charges that are about to be brought up against him later in the film. I mean, they give you yeah, and that pretty was... much where where Clara gets this idea of what she actually says, where it comes from, and so you know that he's completely innocent. She's just saying it because she was rejected and reprimanded for kissing him on the lips, and she just said something stupid and she even says that she even tries to tell the parents that i just said something stupid he didn't do anything but they take it as oh she's trying to block it out now that's her like defense mechanism to sort of move on from this is that she's blocking it out and she's trying to say that it's her fault now and i think that that's the best thing that i've seen this year from tobias lindholm in with his writing between a hijacking and the hunt is even though and I'm sure it was the same for you. You get really pissed off for the way that the townsfolk start treating Lucas, Mads Mikkelsen's character, and the way they sort of automatically put him into this pariah state status. Well, uh, sort of, but at the same time, well, th- that's the interesting thing about the hunt is that it's it's a conversation piece. Like it, it kind of makes you say, okay, well, yeah, it's easy to say that you're pissed off about these townsfolk, but try to put yourself in their shoes exactly exactly that's what i love about lynn holmes writing is i you completely understand where all of these characters are coming from, right yep because you get you have all the information there they do not so you have to sort of look at it from their perspective mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can completely understand where all these people are coming from yeah and all the actions that they do everything that they say it's all very realistic, and you completely understand where they're coming from. Yeah, and and that's the thing that makes that that film so difficult. And but just the fact that I mean, we've seen movies like this before, but the way that the way that they they set it out like this guy's innocent, and we know that from the very beginning. There's no question about it. That's what's new, and I think mm-hmm. that that's one of the things that I found so refreshing about this movie is that like with all these other movies where someone's accused of doing something terrible yeah. <clears throat> and I it's was, like the whole, the whole movie's about what well, did you really do it? Yeah. And I was actually worried like halfway through, I thought that there was, I was really hoping that there wasn't going to be this twist. Oh yeah. Where you found out like someone else actually sexually abused her and she just blamed Lucas, but it was actually so-and-so. 
I was just, I was really hoping. I had my fingers crossed the whole time. Like, please don't go that route, please. <clears throat> I didn't even think about that when I saw it. But the main thing that I loved about this film was the the relationship between Lucas and Clara. So Clara makes, like in the beginning, they show how it's his best friend's daughter, first off. So mm-hmm. he's known her like her entire life. And he is always there for her, always helping her out. And they show that in the beginning of the film. And then it's easy to see why she sort of falls in love with him, given her, you know, mental stasis. She seems to suffer from some sort of like OCD type disorder and her parents are always arguing she just you know you can you can understand why she latches on to lucas and essentially falls in love with the guy it's completely understandable and she makes this unfounded remark just because she was upset and the the thing that i loved about it is that lucas never once blames her never gets angry at her aggressive nothing just always treats her the way that he's always treated her even when she shows up to his house, like, the day afterwards, mm-hmm. asking if she can walk his dog, he still just talks to her like they're the best of friends. And I thought that that was really nice. That was the main thing that I loved about it. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic movie. And it's it's on Netflix now? No, no. I actually got this as a disc. But oh. I, I wouldn't be surprised if... Because Vinterberg's other movies are play instant. So I have a feeling, like, in a couple of weeks, it'll be play instant. So it's it currently it's you can rent it on uh, the disc version of Netflix. Yeah, but this is this is the movie that's like solidified for me. Tobias Lindholm, I'm gonna be checking out pretty much anything he comes out with. I still haven't seen the a hijacking. I gotta see that. And it's the same thing in a hijacking. Like you completely understand where every character is coming from. You understand everything that they're doing because he sort of gives you the same the information the same way that he does in the hunt. Yeah. Cool. Uh, the only other one I saw was called Psalm. It's a documentary about wine sommeliers. All right. Now, I'm not necessarily a wine person. I've tried several times, and I may try again after watching this movie. <laughs> but I just, for some reason, I, I just don't like wine. I don't like the taste. Uh, yeah, I'm not a huge fan either. And, and like, I've tried, because it does seem like something that I would be into. Like, I, I've been to, like, vineyards and stuff, and I've done wine tastings, and I've just never enjoyed anything. But this documentary is so fascinating. It's about um, every year they do a, a big test for sommeliers to achieve the rank of master sommelier. Right. And the documentary follows this group of... Uh, four people as they uh, basically uh, study to be for this test, for this giant test. And the test is extremely difficult. Like there's only, I, uh, I think when the movie started, there was like 170 master sommeliers in the world. Mm-hmm. And it just goes through the rigorous training that these guys do. And the... Part of the test, it's a three-day test, and there's three parts to it. And the one the one part is a blind taste where they give you three whites, three reds, and you have to describe all of the the smells, the flavors. You have to say if it's new world or old world, the the country that it's from, the region that it's from, the the vineyard that it's from. You have to say the year and 
what kind of wine, like the specific, you know, brand of wine it is Mm -hmm. just off of a a blind taste, which is to me incredible. And when you see it in the movie, you're just like, holy shit, how do these people do this? It's it's amazing. Like to, to be able to taste a wine and smell it and be like, oh, this is from 2009. This was, you know, comes from the Napa Valley or whatever. It was just incredible to me. Hmm. And uh, I really enjoyed it. Even though I'm not a wine person, I found it to be really entertaining. I mean, it's a really straightforward documentary. There's no flair other than they do these really cool things. Like as the the day of the test approaches, they do these kind of transition shots where it's uh, slow motion of wine in a wine glass being destroyed. So like, so like at the beginning, they just show the wine glass like sitting and then like the next, as it gets closer, they show it like falling over and then eventually it gets to the point where I think they're like shooting it with a gun or something because it's just exploding <laughs> and it's like super slow motion shots. They, they look really cool and I, it's just this kind of interesting flourish that they added to it that i really liked but this is on netflix instant do they, do they at least give because you're saying it's sort of you know a straightforward documentary and i'm just i'm interested to know is it, do they give you a, a good bit of information oh the at oh, least? Cr- yeah yeah i mean it's crammed full of information like you learned so much about the the job because I, I didn't know too much about small no, right. other yeah. than you know, other than it's a guy at a restaurant that recommends yeah, wine to because that, that was the first thing when you're like Smalley and they're trying to do, pass this master class, and I'm just like, what do you, what do you do with that? You just end up working at a restaurant. Like it's what else can you do with that certificate? Or well, it's actually yeah. See, it's actually really really prestigious. Like once you get once you have achieved that rank, uh, you're pretty much set for life. Like you have so many opportunities, like literally after, as soon as you receive your diploma, you're getting job offers to work at, you know, some of the most prestigious restaurants in the world. And you're, you're pretty much set. Wow. It's very, very prestigious. And also sort of suck because it seems like it comes down to genes. You know how there's no, like, does, there's, it, there's, well, there's like master tasters where people okay, have so like the, the different palates. That's. Yeah, see, that's the interesting thing about this is they all say in the film that it's not something that, you know, you have to have this talent. It's it's a learned ability. And the one the one uh, they were talking to one of the master class people and he said he he kind of um, equated it to a master samurai sword maker. He's like. You, you don't say that, okay, he he was just born into this talent of making swords. He learned it from a teacher. Yeah. And that's exactly how this is, where anybody can do it. You just have to learn from the right person. That's just, that's odd, because I do remember, I think it was just like last year, two years ago, there was a, like a study done about, you know, people with these advanced yeah, palates these ama- and how yeah. they would, you could sit like a shitty bottle of wine Mm-hmm. And a like a, a I mean high end high end bottle of wine. It's just thousands of dollars, and the people with the less developed palates they can't tell the difference at all. It just they taste exactly the same for some. Yeah, people. And 
I mean, maybe that's people that just aren't in the wine world. You know, like I, I always thought that too. Like some people have a refined palate and some people don't. But apparently, with wine tasting, it's it's a learned ability because. You know, when when you taste wine and like it's funny because they use all these descriptors, you know, like um, like wet, wet tree floor (laughs) and like the the one the one that they use is um, rubber hose and grandma's purse. (laughs) Okay, And they use like all these all these different descriptors, you know, like burnt oak and like. dried rose petals and all this stuff but i mean the fact that the fact of the matter is those those things are not actually in the wine but for whatever reason that's what they smell and taste smell like Hmm. so uh, it's really really interesting i i found it to be and the thing about it is you have to learn so much more than just what a wine is by smelling it and tasting it like you have to learn about the region that it comes from, like specific regions. You have to learn about different varieties of, of grapes. You have to learn about the food that should be uh, eaten with a specific type of wine or vice versa. You have to learn about cigars. You have to learn about just all this extra shit that you just couldn't imagine. But I highly recommend it. Very entertaining. Yeah, I'm going to have to... I might have to check this one out. Yeah, it's very. It seems just very interesting. Yeah, and it's it's fun too. I mean, the the, the guys that they follow, uh, they all have kind of unique personalities. They're all relatively funny. It's just an enjoyable watch. Well, I have one last one, which is also a documentary, which was not that good. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I ended up seeing Blackfish, which is. Play Instant right now on Netflix. As so is I also rewatched uh, Prince Avalanche last night, which is also Play Instantly on Netflix. But I'm just going to talk about Blackfish. So I thought that this would be all about Kilauea Orcas, which I like to put those two names together. Kilauea Kilauea Orcas. <laughs> Kilauea Orcas. That's what I call them. Uh, and I thought that there was just going to be so much information about Kilauea Orcas. And how they are in the wild as opposed to how they are in places like SeaWorld when they're kept in captivity. And I feel like what I really got was a bunch of former SeaWorld employees just trying to come to terms with their old job. And just trying to justify what they used to do. And it just, I don't, I mean there was one shocking thing to me that came out of this was when they were talking about you know, all these people were talking about how they wanted to be animal trainers so bad at SeaWorld. They just want to do it. Nothing more in the world that they want to do and then work with these killer whale workers. And then they find out that all you got to do is be in decent shape and be a good swimmer. So give it a shot. And I'm just yeah. like, doesn't that tell you right there that something's fucking wrong? Like, you, yeah. you don't need to know anything to take care of these animals. That's just, that's a huge red flag. And I'm just... I was sort of getting annoyed by these people telling me, you know, they're on the camera and telling me that how much they love killer whale orcas. They just absolutely love them. They're majestic beasts, all this and that. And at the same time, they're telling me that 
The only thing that they knew about him is what SeaWorld told them. Or what SeaWorld taught them about killer whale orcas. That's the only information they know. And I'm like, well, if you love these animals so fucking much, how do you not know anything about them? Like, how are you not interested? How are you not at, like, a Barnes & Noble and you're like, oh, killer whales, I work with them. Let me check this out. Like, how do you, how do you not know any of this information? How did no one buy you any presents, like, any books or anything about killer whales? I mean, the internet exists. I just, I don't get it. They're just, like, the, the amount of information that they knew is just uh, twisted facts that came from SeaWorld. And then they're sitting here trying to tell me that they love killer whales. And I'm like, you don't love killer whales. You just love your fucking job. You don't give a shit about killer whales. And just, and then the thing that gets me is that, you know, it's all about Tilcom, the killer whale worker that kills people. And they sort of set it up, they get you emotionally invested, and then they start talking about how they have document, documents proving that there's been like 170 or 180 attacks at SeaWorld with these killer whales on the trainers and stuff. And I'm like, oh, here we go, they're going to just drive it home. And they talk about like two instances and then they're done. I'm just like, what, what, you have all that information, can you please share it with me? I mean, you're trying to make SeaWorld look so bad, and I, I mean, they do, but yeah, sea, yeah sea, they do. But SeaWorld is already bad. I mean, I don't think you really need this documentary to show you that they're a terrible place. You should already know that. I mean, they're huge animals being kept in probably a space that's smaller than my apartment right now. I mean, that's bad. You don't need With a no doc- lights. Yeah, you don't no need, lights on. You don't need a documentary to tell you. These, well, these things swim hundreds of miles every day and i and then also they inadvertently do this thing where they're talking about telecom and saying that he's like psychotic like he had a psychotic break and that's why he kills now and they sort of i think they inadvertently make him look deranged and well, he's, sort of, he is i think he is crazy i, I mean I, they, that's what they try to I know, but it, I think they go about it the wrong way, and especially when they go into where they show like all of his offspring, because that's really all they use Tilikum for now. And I mean, they bring him out once a blue moon, he does the bow thing, but they really just use him for breeding purposes, and they show this, you know, family tree type deal of all these offspring of Tilikum, and they're saying that like the offspring are deranged because they came from Tilikum, and I'm like, no, that's not the point here. It's not that Tillicum's like mentally disturbed and he's psychotic and he's passing his genes on. It's the fact that how they how they store them, right, and how they treat them. Because, like you're completely missing the point here, right? Because this, the same thing is going to happen to Tillicum's offspring that happened to Tillicum. Yeah, but they you were know, sort they're of treating him the same. They're treating those yeah. animals the same way. But the, the so way of course that they, it's going to happen. The way that they sort of present it is they're, they're sort of blaming it on like it's in Tilikum's genes because he's psychotic. So now we have all these other offsprings that might be mentally disturbed because they came from him. And it's like, no, no, that's not the reason. It's because they're kept in a tiny enclosure with no lights and they're very social creatures. And just and plus, everything you're doing is terrible. Stop it. Yeah, and plus Tilikum was getting bullied by the other the other orcas too yeah. he's getting like injured and i'd go crazy too i'd start killing people why wouldn't you and especially because you know when they they do because it really all revolves around that the the most recent trainer to be killed by a you know an orca and when they sort of show it to you 
and you know she runs out of fish and you know she's not giving him treats for the tricks that he's doing so guess what orc is gonna get pissed off right yeah you gotta fucking give him treats or they're gonna get their own treats which involve you and i'm sorry i'm just one of these types of people i do not feel bad for you i i'm it's the same way with like shark attacks stay the fuck away from them, all right I'm not going to feel bad for you because you got attacked by something that you should be playing with in the first place. Yeah, I agree to you uh, to a certain extent. I just, I don't, I don't get it. Like an orc whale puts its flipper up. Like what's, what's so cool about that? Oh, he rolls on his back. Gives well, shit. This, this documentary is not, I mean, it's not meant for someone like you that already has your mind made up about it or me for that matter. It's, I think, supposed to be for people that don't don't realize what's going on here. And yeah, make- but I, I, and I think that I, I completely understand what you're saying. And I think that they just they missed an opportunity because I have a feeling that a lot of those people, you know, the ones that you're describing are going to watch this and just go, oh, that's that's disgusting. That's sad. And then just forget about it like a week later. I, well, I hope not. I mean, there there has been a bit of an impact on this. Like a lot of uh, the people that perform at SeaWorld are, are canceling. Actually, I just read this week that Willie Nelson was going to have a big SeaWorld like thing that he was doing and he dropped out. And then there was another big singer that was going to be playing at SeaWorld that dropped out because of this movie. So, you know, I, I think good. that it's, it's good. Movies like this, I think are important. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope it does have a good, you know, positive impact. Yeah. Which it seems like you're saying it, it is. So that's good. Yeah. I mean, it's I just not think gonna... I, as a documentary, though, I just think it was sort of there. I saw one. I saw one other one that I forgot to put on Letterboxd. Uh, it's called Big Boys Gone Bananas. Oh, uh, you finally got to see this? Yep. Finally got to see it. It's actually on Netflix Instant. I, w- I wanted to tell you that it was because as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, Adam's been wanting to see that for like two years. Yeah. So basically, this is a documentary about a Swedish filmmaker who made a movie. He made a documentary called Bananas. And you can see that documentary. It came out in 2009. And you're finally able to see it. But basically, the documentary is about the the fruit company Dole and how they are using this pesticide, this poisonous pesticide that uh, made... All the males at this um, in these banana fields in Nicaragua, they went sterile because of it, and they some of them died. And there was a big court case around it. Uh, Dole was found guilty. There was a huge settlement, and this Swedish filmmaker just made a documentary about this. And he, after the documentary was completed, he was going to release it at the LA Film Festival. And Dole got wind of the film and basically started this enormous campaign to crush the movie. And they started by sending letters to the filmmakers and to the L.A. Film Festival and all the sponsors of the L.A. Film Festival saying, you better not let this thing come out or we're going to sue everyone. And... 
So what happened was the LA Film Festival didn't back down. They still allowed the film to be shown, but they took it out of competition. So it wasn't in competition anymore. And then they ended up showing it at one of their like satellite locations, which was inaccessible via shuttle. And it was just kind of, you know, relegated to this smaller area. And they had to read this statement before each screening that says this film is being shown only as a case study that all documentary filmmakers should check their facts before creating a film because this movie is entirely fraudulent and it was just so unbelievable and then of course after the the film screened at the festival Dole did sue the filmmakers and started this huge smear campaign by sending out like press releases to the media and stuff saying that the the movie was entirely a fraud everything was fabricated the lawyer that was represented in the in the case was a liar and an ambulance chaser and all this stuff and I mean, it was just so incredible to see this giant corporation attacking this small filmmaker about this and just, it was just so crazy. And, you know, we've, at on the site, we've been going through some shit recently that's kind of the same thing. And I just found it to be so fascinating and... <laughs> the the funny thing was with this with this documentary big boys gone bananas as soon as he got the first letter from dole he started filming like he started filming everything and the result is this documentary that he put out about how dole is tr- was trying to you know crush his first amendment rights hmm. and it it's i think anybody that's into uh, journalism or film should definitely see this movie because a lot of it is about journalism as well and how Dole used the media to manipulate this story. Wow. So highly recommend checking that one out. Corporations, good people. Good yep. people. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. You want to talk about some Golden Globes noms? Sure, why not? Alright, so this week, earlier this week, the Golden Globes nominations came out. I don't know if you've had a chance to review all of these, Kevin, but uh, we'll just start with the big ones. Right off the bat, did you care? Did you care? No, 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 of course not. It's funny, each each year, (laughs) I care a little bit less. (laughs) Exactly. This was the first year where I was like, "Eh, who cares? Like, I, like I, I didn't even, I was looking down through the site and I saw that you posted them. I was like, uh, no, I got other stuff. Well, yeah, that was the thing when I was writing the article. I was like, ugh. <laughs> like, I was just, I didn't even want to write the article. Who cares? Uh, so, we'll start with the big ones. Best motion picture, drama, 12 Years a Slave, Captain Phillips, Gravity, Philomena, and Rush. Mm-hmm. Kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now I haven't seen Philomena. I've heard good things, but it doesn't interest me. But Rush, 
I find it. I, I'm I'm a little confused as to why Rush is on there. Rush is on there because uh, it's an unwritten rule that you have to have at least a one Spielberg or one Ron Howard film nominated Could every be. year. Yeah. I think it. To me, that's how I see it. Like they're the darlings of the studio system. They have to get theirs. Yeah. So that that list I find to be. Uh, pretty i don't even know if any of these well toy your slave will be on my top 10 gravity might be on my top 10 but none of the other ones will be yeah i just i don't know i don't know i just i think that's a really weak five films i think it's extremely for best, weak for best draw well plus you know plus you know that 12 years of slave is going to win it anyway so oh, yeah 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 <laughs> why don't they just give out the winner <laughs> <laughs> the nominees for best drama are 12 years a slave 12 years yeah. a slave 12 years a slave 12 years a slave that's because it. you know you know it's gonna win anyway exactly so. uh best performance by an actress in a motion picture we have kate blanchett for blue jasmine sandra bullock for gravity judy dench for philomena emma thompson for saving mr banks and kate winslet for labor day uh, is did labor day come out this year is that even uh, maybe like a limited release. I don't even know if it came out limited yet. I don't think maybe it like did. towards the end of the year. I mean, I I would assume that it's going to have to have some sort of release to be included, but but also we I don't we haven't gotten to talk about Labor Day. That looks like a piece of shit, right? Uh, I think Labor Day looks god awful. I don't know. I'll I'll it looks, see it. It looks like a Lifetime movie. I'll check it out. God Why not? God, the GD Lifetime movie. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how that one plays out. Slightly interested, I guess. Um, I don't know. These, but it's, these are... it's directed by Manila Folder extraordinaire, Jason Reitman. <laughs> I know you really don't like him. I, he's, I do. God, he's so boring. So bland. Unbelievably bland. I like... Um... Man, man. Him and Alexander Payne. They they do have very similar styles to them. They are the epitome. Of, I'm I'm gonna start that. We gotta start that Manila folder all tours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right, best performance by an actor. We have uh, Chidwell Ejiofor for that. Uh, that actually wasn't so bad. Have you been practicing that? No, I haven't. But I, I don't even know if that is the right way of saying. It's probably not. It's probably not even close. But it sounds good. Yeah. Idris Elba, Mandela, Tom Hanks for Saving Mr. Banks, Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club and Robert Redford for All is Lost. Mm. And Tom Hanks for Captain Phillips. Oh. On my list, it says Saving Mr. Banks, but okay. okay. Uh, we'll, we'll go Captain Phillips. Probably Both. a better performance than that. But. Just say... Yeah, I mean that that's fine. Like th- that's a fine list. I haven't seen Mandela or Dallas Buyers Club or All's Lost, so uh Robert Redford's okay in All's Lost. Like I give him kudos for doing like all the stunt work that he does in it, but I yeah, I don't know. I guess I really can't can't be too upset with that one. Uh best motion motion picture, comedy or musical, we have American Hustle, Her, Inside Lewin Davis, Nebraska, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Now like to me, those movies seem 
way more appealing than the, the best, best motion picture drama. This is another thing that I hate about the Golden Globes is the breakups. How there's drama and then comedy or musical. Yeah, I, hate I don't how know. They, they broken up in the two. I I don't like that at all. Like, cause I think that a, a lot of those movies are definitely you could argue that are not comedies. Yeah, I don't know how hilarious Nebraska is. I heard that it is actually really funny, but I don't know if it'd be considered a comedy. Yeah. Nor nor would I think that her is necessarily considered a comedy or American Hustle. <laughs> I don't <laughs> consider any of those to be comedies. <laughs> I just I I don't know what Golden Globes are doing. I've never understood the Golden Globes though, so Yeah. Uh, best performance by an actress in a motion picture, comedy, or musical. See, they break it down I know, to that, it's, too. Exactly. That's what bothers <laughs> me, man. God. Oh, man. Which Amy one? Adams oh. for American Hustle. Julie Delpy for Before Midnight. Again, uh, comedy or musical, Before Midnight is not... That is not a comedy. I'm sorry. That's a I drama. also don't think... Is August Osage County... Really, a comedy? No, I don't consider because Meryl. I mean, Meryl Streep. Is it? Do they? They must consider it a comedy just because there's like one or two jokes in it that make you laugh. <laughs> it seems. Like, I have a feeling that they, they have a scorecard while they're watching, and if they chuckle at least two times, it automatically gets thrown into comedy or musical category. If there's if there's one hearty laugh or four chortles, it's considered a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus got nominated for Enough Said. That's that's cool. And Greta Gerwig for Francis Ha. I like that. I do like seeing Greta Gerwig in there. Also, yeah. like uh, Amy Adams does look pretty good in uh, American Hustle. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to see that. Uh, best performance by an actor in a motion picture, comedy, or musical. We have Christian Bale for American Hustle, Bruce Dern for Nebraska, Leonardo DiCaprio for The Wolf of Wall Street, Oscar Isaac for Inside Lewin Davis and Joaquin Phoenix for her. They all look like pretty solid performances. So. Yeah, I can't really can't really get upset with any of those. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, best animated film: The Crudes, Despicable Me Two, and Frozen. Solid like, year for animated. That, films. that is like three garbage picks right there. <laughs> I feel like there had to be at least one or two other animated films. I don't know. Maybe not. I can I can barely keep track of what comes out in one year. I know for a fact that I that I saw some animated films this year. Something you saw something. Because I didn't see the Crudes, Despicable Me Two, or Frozen. Wasn't there like a? Wasn't there a? Oh, it was Monsters University. Yeah, I what, think. What the hell is that? What was that about? Wasn't there a stop motion one too? Oh, there was uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2 that yeah. came out. I mean, those weren't great, but they were better than... Or they looked better than those three. Anyway. It's fucking minions. Best foreign language film, we have Blue is the Warmest Color, The Great Beauty, The Hunt, The Past, and The Wind Rises. Lots of thuzz going on there. Yeah, a lot of thuzz. All pretty solid films. I think the I love the fact that the wind rises is probably better than all three animated features put together. Yeah, what the what the <laughs> hell is that all about? <laughs> better than all three of those films put together. Yeah, 
Uh, let's skip to best director. We have Alfonso, and then see that they they do best director motion picture. So that that includes all of them. Yeah, you don't get, you don't get a broken. You don't, up they don't into... separate the directors. You can separate the movies themselves and the actors, but not the directors. That's right. So that's Alfonso Cuarón, Paul Greengrass, Steve McQueen, Alexander Payne, and David O. Russell. Pretty uh, pretty standard list there. Yeah. Names that we see every year. Yep. All their buddies. All their buddies. Uh, screenplay, we have Spike Jones for her, Bob Nelson for Nebraska, Jeff Pope and Steve Coogan for Philomena. I just want to see Steve Coogan win a Golden Globe. I think that'd be cool. That would be pretty nice. John Ridley for 12 Years a Slave, Eric Warren Singer and David O. Russell for American Hustle. That's pretty much pretty much it. Pretty weak. Pretty weak, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Golden Globes are going to be on TV January 12th. They're going to be hosted by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. So. Which would be the only reason I would watch this. Yeah, I mean, it'll be funny. I'll I'll probably... I might watch it. I don't remember if I watched... I don't think I watched last year. Oh, I, two things I wanted to point out real quick. I'm happy to see in Best Supporting Actor, Jared Leto's back. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to see that on there. I'm happy to see uh, Barhad Abdi from Captain Phillips and Daniel Brühl. Yeah. It's sort of surprising to see him on here. I haven't seen him in an, any American films besides uh, he, Inglorious he really, Bastards. He was really good in Rush. He was. was. Mm hmm. Yeah. Bradley Cooper gets in because of his perm. <laughs> I wish it said Bradley Cooper and perm. And then uh, Best Supporting Actress, I'm happy to see uh, Sally Hawkins on there for Blue Jasmine, and of course Lupita Youngo for uh, 12 Years a Slave. Yep, yeah. Which she better definitely win. If they give it to Jennifer Lawrence, who just plays fucking Jennifer Lawrence in every film. (laughs) Break. I like Jennifer Lawrence, though. Jennifer Lawrence with a bow. Jennifer Lawrence in Backwoods. In Backwoods. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence in Backwoods. <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence dancing. It's like all of her characters are just the same. She just plays them as Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, yeah. I guess. I like her. Alright, let's, uh, so that's, that's the Golden Globes. Not anything too exciting there. And I, I have a strong feeling that the Oscars are going to be pretty much the same. Although, I don't know, last year there was... A number of surprise Oscar nominations, so maybe they'll they'll do something crazy this year. We'll see. Do you it. think they'll actually pick ten films? I don't know. I don't know what they're gonna do. They could. I mean, they they could easily. They could. I mean, they made that change, and I think they've done it once since then. It was yeah, it's a mess. It's a complete mess. Uh, let's talk about something a little bit more exciting, and that's the Sundance Film Festival. So the lineup huge lineup has been announced and they they included i think at this point everything's been announced even the shorts yeah film festivals are getting getting a bit out of hand don't they <laughs> it's, it's, insane. <laughs> it's insane like i haven't gone through the entire list so there's i'm sure that the ones that we're going to highlight here are not the ones that i'm the most excited about or the best in any way. These are just the ones that kind of 
stuck out to me. Uh, first being the the new Joe Swanberg, Happy Christmas. Yeah, I think that that looks really interesting with uh, Anna Kendrick and Lena Dunham is in it, and Joe Swanberg, of course. So I'm interested to see that. What's uh, what's one that you're kind of into? Uh, I'm very interested in Alex Ross Perry's new film, his follow-up to The Color Wheel, called Listen Up, Philip, which has Elizabeth Moss, Jason Schwartzman, Jonathan Price, uh, Kristen Ritter, Caitlin Scheel, and Daniel London in it. I was a, was a big fan of The Color Wheel, so I'm very interested to see what he does, especially given the fact that it, it seems like he has a has some budget here. You know, he's got mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moth and uh, Jason Schwartzman in there. Plus, it takes I, place in New York, so very I was also, yeah, I was also a fan of The Color Wheel, so I'm definitely excited for that. The One of the big premieres that I'm excited for, obviously, is The Raid 2. Yes. That's going to be premiering God, yes. there. I, I cannot wait for that. Uh, the Trip to Italy, which is the Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon sequel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very excited for that. And I'm also excited for the new David Wayne film. I think it's, uh, wait a minute, They Came Together, it's called. It's with um, Paul Rudd, Ed Helms, Kobe Smulders, Amy Poehler, Christopher Maloney's in it. So I'm definitely into that. And it was written by Michael Showalter and David Wayne. The thing about... David Wayne's stuff is I always want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Like I'll, I keep giving him more chances. Like I haven't been that into his stuff recently. I didn't like the 10 very much. I didn't like Wonderlust very much. Yeah. He's, but, sort of, he's hit or miss, but I am extremely excited about the prospect of Michael Shannon being in a comedy. Yeah. He, he needs to do that more. Absolutely. He's very funny. I find him to be hilarious. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, very interested in that. I am as well. Definitely looking forward to that one. Uh, another one that sounds just very odd and really into is Frank by Lenny Abramson, who did uh, his last movie. He did was what Richard did, which I heard good things about. But this has Michael Fassbender, Don Hall, Gleason, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and good old Scoot McNary. Mm-hmm. And a, you know, a wannabe musician who joins an avant-garde rock band led by Frank, who's played by Michael Fassbender, who hides inside of a large fake head. I don't know, like, what anything has to do. If you just check, there's like one one uh, still photograph from this film, and just seeing him with that giant fake head on, I'm just automatically in. I don't know what the hell this is about. I just want to see Michael Fassbender wearing that giant fake head for <laughs> like an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm very intrigued by the prospect of that. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely into You know, looking at the list, I'm pretty much excited for everything. Honestly, like, it all looks very good to me. Uh, God's Pocket is another one that I think could be interesting. That's, oh, that's with. The, is that the Slattery? Yeah, it's yeah, and it's uh, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, Richard Jenkins, Christina Hendricks, and John Turturro, and uh, our buddy nice. uh, uh, Eddie Marsden. Oh, nice! Yeah, plus I like seeing Turturro back. Absolutely. So that uh, that one looks. Pretty, 
another one, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman is a uh, most wanted man. Anton Corbin's newest film. The guy did uh, the American, mostly known for you know his uh, music videos. But I thoroughly enjoyed the American with uh, George Clooney. And this is his uh, adaptation of a John Le Carre spy novel, which mm. just seems like a perfect marriage to me. Just his stylings and the and it set inside the John Le Carre spy novel world. I just oh, I can't wait for this. Plus, it's got Philip Seymour Hoffman, Rachel McAdams, Willem Dafoe, Daniel Bruhl is back, Nina Haas from uh, you might remember her from Barbara, and mm-hmm. Gregory. Uh, uh, let me Dobrigan. It was actually the main character in a film I just saw a couple weeks ago called How I Ended This Summer. It's a Russian actor. I'm very interested in this. I like his visual style. Yeah, now I'm actually interested in a lot of the the next lineup series. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's the one that has um the what was the one you just mentioned. Listen that, up Philip. Yeah. The Alex Ross yeah. Perry film. Plus there's Pretty a new much. Aaron Katz film. His yeah. follow-up to Cold Weather, which I really loved, starring uh, Paul Einhorn, who was in uh, This Is Martin Bonner from this year, and its brothers and brothers-in-laws uh, embarking on a road trip through Iceland. Yes, please. Yeah. So, Sundance, pretty pretty huge lineup. I do want to quickly mention Slam Dance too, because the lineup for Slam Dance has been announced, and I think you know Slam Dance started off really small, but I think it's pretty quickly growing. Uh, to be huge, and uh, there were there were a lot of films that were at Slam Dance last year that I came to really enjoy, like Diamond on Vinyl premiered there, um, The Dirties, which is probably going to be one of my top ten of the year, premiered there, uh, and this year there's been a bunch there's a bunch that are going to be premiering there uh, for filmmakers that that I talked to who took Johnny is one that, that was featured on our kickstart Sunday feature. Um, Rover is another one that we interviewed the director of that. That's going to be premiering there this year. Nice. So there's quite a number of uh, really interesting looking films that are going to be at slam dance this year too. Hmm. Okay, I didn't get a chance to look at the slam dance. That's another thing. There seems to be just entirely too many film festivals. Oh, there's yeah. There's a ridiculous number of film festivals. There's so many. There's there's too many. So So there you have it. A uh, very exciting festival season coming up and we're going to try our best to cover as much of it as we can on the site. Uh, I think we can go ahead and move on to predictions. Let's do it. Let's Last week, The Hobbit Des- Desolation of Smaug. Smaug. Uh, you said 88, I said 74. Actual 74. Dick. Bam. Dick. Tyler Perry's A Medea Christmas. <clears throat> you said 12, I said 45. Actual 20. Nice. <laughs> Saving Mr. Banks. You said 58, I said 72. Actual 81. Are you and me? American Hustle. You said 84, I said 79. Actual 95. Nice. I like that. So, yeah. Next week, we have Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. What are you thinking on this one? <clears throat> I have no idea. 64. Mm, that's what I was going to pick, actually. Uh, I'll say 65. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, but you went yeah. 65, I said, what, 64? Yeah. You're an asshole. Well, I wanted to say 64, but then you said you it. You and your... Oh, man. You're an asshole. <laughs> Spike Jones is her. Uh, I'm gonna say like I'm gonna say 94 on that one. Can I boycott this until I get to see it? Because I'm just really pissed off that it's gonna be forever until I get to see it. Is it not getting a wide release? No, it's not gonna. Oh no, I think it is getting a wide release, just not till January. Oh, one of those moves. Yeah, because they. Which even then, it's probably not going to show up. Probably not. And I think it's coming out like January 12th or something. We have the date, January 10th. Because we have the review up on the site already from when Ernie saw it at AFI. And um, <clears throat> I put the act the wide release date on there. So. Which sucks because it's probably definitely going to be, on, would be on my top 10 of 2013. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm not going to get to see it. Until after I put that list out, so it's unfortunate. I know, it really sucks. We'll have to just add that. What are you thinking on her? I'm thinking like a 88. 88? Okay. Uh, we have Walking with Dinosaurs 3D. I'm not excited about this one at all. Why would you be? <laughs> oh, this looks so stupid. What are you thinking? Uh, 56. I'll say 58. And that's pretty much it. We In limited release next week, we have Wrong Cops, which I'm very excited for. The Past. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's, it's limited release, so you're probably not going to be able to see it. I want to see it's, The Past. Yeah, it looks good. The Selfish Giant. Which oh my I, God, we I, have wanna, a, I want to see this movie more than anything. Yeah, we have a review for that up on the site. And uh, Joe Swanberg's All the Light in the Sky. Mm, okay, okay. Next week on Video on Demand, we have All the Light in the Sky. So we can see that one. Wrong okay. Cops, which we can also see. Right. Definitely going to be checking that one out. And one called Watchtower, which I don't know too much about. Oh, I was hoping you would say Selfish Giant. I don't think so. DVD and Blu-ray releases for next week. We have Elysium, which uh, I I guess it's probably worth a rental. I wasn't too big on it, but it was okay. Lone Ranger, which I never saw, so I can't say too much about that. Heard it was bad. Yeah. And then I also heard that this, you know, people destroyed it. And then I saw this, like, little pushback. Like small pockets of people. Yeah. Like going yeah. the exact opposite and like just coming out in defense of the Lone Ranger and saying how great of a movie it is. Yeah, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to check it out when it comes out. Kick Ass 2, which I thought was horrible. Prisoners, which we both liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Percy Jackson, Sea of Monsters. Sure. Probably, probably skip that one. Sure. The Family, probably skip that one. Ain't Them Body Saints. Uh, I would say light recommend on yeah, that for I would me. Say, yeah, I'd say recommend for me. That's the yeah. first one so far. But, uh, well, outside of Prisoners. And I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. It was all right. It's and good. finally, Ghost Team 1, which I would not recommend. Oh, but what about Devil's Pass? It's which, not, 
Was she? Weren't you big on that one, Rennie Harlan? Uh, no, I was not big on that one. I would say <laughs> skip Devil's Pass. So pretty much, once again, skip everything that's coming out on DVD. Yeah, pretty much. It seems like that's all we do every week. We just like skip it, skip it, skip it. Yeah. Just a lot I mean, of shit out there. I would just say rent all the light in the sky and wrong cops on video on demand. Just check go. those two out. There you go. All right. Any other ones that I missed? No, there's actually no criterions coming out until uh, January. Yeah, it's just they're the just, the holidays. Yeah, I think. they're just taking their holiday break, man. All right. Well, I think that that'll wrap it up. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. Send us an email at feedback at filmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. And I'm Kevin. And we'll see you on Thursday for Ryan Watches a Movie. I would never run. Why the fuck would you think that? <laughs>